Okay, ladies and gentlemen, um, welcome to the LSE for this evening's event. My name is Sonia Livingstone, and I'm Professor of Social Psychology in the Department of Media and Communications at the LSE, and I'm also Chair of the Truth, Trust and Technology Commission, which I think we'll refer to as a T3 uh, this evening, as we usually do. And it's a great honour for me to welcome an exciting panel to LSE today. I begin with a quick apology. Baroness Kidron is unable to join us as she's been called to business in the House of Lords, and I hope we'll welcome her to LSE on another occasion in the future. And also Damien Collins um, has um, business in the House also, but will be joining us, we hope, later in this event. Um, he's the Conservative MP for Folkestone and Hythe, Chair of the Digital Culture, Media and Sport Common Select Committee, which has been hearing some startling evidence recently, as I'm sure some of you will know, and he's also a T3 Commissioner. So I'm going to um, briefly introduce the panel to you and then make a few remarks uh, just to introduce you to the uh, Commission and uh, then hope to hear uh, your questions as we proceed. So the panel, um, as in fact you can see, is James Ball, uh, T3 Commissioner and author of Post-Truth, How Bullshit Conquered the World. Um, great title for a book. I don't like to think about the search engine results. <laughs> um, Charlie Beckett, who's Professor in the Department of Media and Communications and Director of the T3 Commission. And Sophie Gaston, Deputy Director of Demos and author of their recent report, Mediating Populism, which looks at how journalists think about and cover populism. And she's also worked as a ministerial speechwriter and political advisor in Australia and is a former scholar from the Department of Government here, so welcome back. For those who are not familiar with our commission, we have a very timely remit. Our job is to identify the structural causes of media misinformation and to come up with a framework for tackling them through strategic policy. The Commission has four strands. We're focusing on journalism credibility, platform responsibility, political communications, and media literacy and citizenship. And we're currently hearing evidence from practitioners and other experts, and we'll be publishing a report in November. A somewhat terrifying thought, but that's the case. So this is a public event, and we look forward to hearing from everybody here today. Um, so while the panel kicks off the, the discussion, do be thinking of your questions. And you can stay involved also after tonight's discussion. If you check out the, session, the section on our website called Have Your Say, uh, where you can submit ideas to the Commission in response to some key questions about misinformation that we've identified. Uh, for Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag is, is it up there? Yes, uh, LSET3. Um, please do all put your phones onto silent so not to disrupt this evening's event. Um, this event is being recorded and should be made available as a podcast and is also being streamed live for those who cannot be with us tonight. So I think in the past few months we've learned more, though perhaps not yet enough, about the way in which big platforms use our information and for what ends. Just to get an idea of the impact these revelations have had, can I ask you, uh, the audience, first, how many of you have changed the way you use social media, perhaps altered your settings or even quit a platform because of these revelations? 
Okay, I'll put my end. Yeah, Charlie? <laughs> okay, thank you. Good. So that's interesting. Uh, it shows we have a responsive and informed audience here. And um, so in a while, I'll give you a chance to put your thoughts and questions to the speakers. But first, if you could join me in welcoming the panel. Come over here and closer to them so I can ask. Um, so I'm going to ask them each to make a short statement um, and ask each of them broadly the same question, which is what do they think is the most urgent issue that we need to address? And James, if I can start with you. Um, I'd essentially say I think we have a lot of talk and a lot of confused sort of messages going on at the moment and trying to tease out what we're trying to fix is sort of quite difficult. Um, you can tell by the sort of really over-optimistic title of my book, um, How Bullshit Conquered the World, uh, how well I think we're doing at the moment. Um, and essentially, I think a large part of the problem is we talk too much about fake news and fake news can really come to mean anything, especially when, you know, a certain man with tiny hands and uh, orange hair uses the term. Um, but it's really actually only a small part of our problem. Fake news kind of described properly just means something absolutely completely invented. Um, you know, Pope endorses Donald Trump or similar to that. That's actually a fractionally small part of what's going on with information and misinformation. What you then sort of have to get into is a series of connected issues. One of them is the rise of hyperpartisan news, the sort of Breitbarts of the world, the canaries of the world, sort of places that will run a story that isn't totally made up, but will do a lot, lot better than a true one. Um, you know, my sort of classic example of this was a Breitbart headline saying, Muslim mob sets fire to Germany's oldest church. Um, now, the reason this kind of story is so dangerous is it's clearly written to inflame, it's written to divide, and it does incredibly well on social. But can you say it's entirely false? The way I would describe the events they spoke about was to say that there was a protest of refugees in Germany, um, and of course refugees in Germany are from majority Muslim countries, um, and during that uh, protest some fireworks were set off one of them hit the boundary wall of a church, sort of the thing around its grounds, and a tarpaulin, which was briefly set alight. And people from the crowd actually ran over and helped put it out, according to sort of eyewitness reports. Now, is that initial headline fake news? There was a fire. Now, whether a crowd is a protest or a mob is a matter of opinion. I don't think there's a factual definition. Uh, there was a church and there was a fire. And so starting to work out when a story goes from biased to too biased to fake is a much more delicate issue than sort of just talking about fake news. And it's not one that we can just fix by saying, don't show this kind of story. Um, if we're only going to sort of, you know, we will never just have entirely un unbiased lists of facts. Even a list of facts is biased on what order you put them in. So we actually have a big problem there. You then essentially also have a hollowing out of the sort of mainstream media. Um, a lot of the ad, ad sort of market essentially means that news sites rely on getting millions and millions of clicks, each one of which might pay about half a cent. 
And if you're trying to do that, do you do a detailed, in-depth, balanced sort of account? Or do you do something like, to take a big story from earlier in the year, you know, Tories vote animals can't feel pain? You can pay someone almost nothing to write that. You hype up a version of it and you sort of get it out there. There are newsrooms in the UK now where reporters have 45 minutes per story to research it, write it, find the pictures, write the captions, write the headlines and other material and get it out there. They have to do eight or nine of those in a day. That's essentially the same business model as fake news. By the time you've driven the costs so low and trying to get the views that high, it's difficult. And so you essentially have the issue of online suits what people share, what they want to look at. And for all that we might say we want high-quality news and balance and careful stuff, you know, I read the stats, I know what we actually read, and I know what we actually share, and it isn't that. And so we have an economic model and an attention model that rewards exaggeration, that rewards suiting people's biases, that rewards all of these kind of things. And so, unfortunately, if we're looking at how we restore trust and how we tackle it, we don't just have to address Russia, we don't just have to address fake news, we don't just have to get Mark Zuckerberg to do a bit more. We actually have a whole business model to look at. Um, and I'm cheery, aren't I? You're very cheery, yes. Well, you've extended the range of problems that we need to think about. Um, does the book include solutions or just thinking about that business model? I mean, what we don't want the list of facts, we don't want the journalists under pressure... What's so, um, the, what are the conditions? I think, I think there are quite a lot. Um, I think I, I haven't read my own book lately. <laughs> there's, there's a full chapter with about 22 yeah. solutions in there. Some of them yeah. are things government can do. Some are things newsrooms can do. Some are things that we can do as a public. I mean, one of the absolute simplest ones is count to five before you share a story. <laughs> and yeah. I don't always do this. Uh, in fact, I did it this morning. Someone, it, it had been quite widely reported, but it had been reported Facebook's new dating feature mm. wouldn't let you use it if you were um, on the site as in a relationship or married, which seemed to me like Mark Zuckerberg becoming the morality police. Mm. And so I tweeted that, you know, nice outrage opinion, start your day. Turns out, basically, it was one writer had misinterpreted a comment. Everyone else had written up off that one, and it was nonsense. So always lovely to spread fake news, having written a book about it. So, But we can, we can ask people to uh, think twice. It seems entirely fair yep, enough. That but, kind of works. But, but the conditions to stop the journalists making that mistake or the checks and balances that would be needed so that never reached your news feed in the first place. I mean, I think finding more business models for journalism, and I think as well, if journalism wants mm. to be trusted... It has to wean itself off the drug of actually feeding this race to the bottom, stack them high, sell them cheap mm. ad model. I think at the moment, one of the problems is if you look on the weird sections of a lot of news websites, the Sun and the Express, they will run fake news. They will run, will Nibiru end human life on April the 23rd? Turned out, no, who knew? Um, but... If we want to be in the business of saying trust us, we have to be trustworthy. And that doesn't just mean put everything behind a paywall. There's lots of ways to fund stuff. But if we want to be trusted, we do have to get out of some of the old tricks that we got in. And we also have to look at reflecting the audience that we're in. Yeah. Um, if you are sort of white, male, middle class, straight... Um, and in your 50s, you are brilliantly served by the British media. 
if you're not, you're not. Um, and so I think it's a bit odd a lot of the time that the media kind of goes, why does no one trust us, when actually so much of what we produce is sort of catered to such a small slice of the country. So, so just to um, look at the range of point where, where you're pointing the finger, I mean, you're, you're thinking about the audience that clicks too quickly, you're thinking about the journalists and the business models. I thought the platforms were to blame. Aren't we here to discuss the fact that the platforms are to blame for taking all the money and the, um, changing the business I mean, model, you know, undermining may, the business maybe model? Maybe I'm a shill for big tech, but... The platforms have far too much power already. You know, Mark Zuckerberg has 2.2 billion users, and frankly, he polices too much content and has too much power already. Mm. Do I want to make this dude who's already clearly... You know, Facebook, I don't think, tried to build an evil empire. It's like a sort of toddler that suddenly realizes they have superhuman strength. You know, they're running through, they're smashing the walls, the house is falling down, you know, they've trod on the neighbor's cat. Um, they sort of suddenly finding themselves in this position of huge power with really no idea how to use it. Mm. And if we sort of put all the responsibility on the platforms for deciding what counts as journalism, what counts as quality, mm. what we should and shouldn't see, mm. we actually risk giving them even more power by asking them to fix the mess. I think what we have to do is work out how to regulate them, work out sort of like basically have as governments and as countries set some rules for them to follow, not just go, you made the mess, fix it, because mm. that actually makes them even more powerful than they are now. I'm sure this is a point we're going to come back to and that people are going to want to um, press on in questions, but I want to bring Sophie in uh, now. Um, and um, just thinking about the, the, the side of the public, the audience, I mean, why do you think people are so vulnerable to misinformation? Why is, what, that seems to be a crucial part of the problem. Yes, well, I think the first thing to recognize is that misinformation is not new, nor is it entirely endemic to the digital age. Um, one only has to look at the sort of 30 years of misinformation we've had about the European Union um, to see that this is a problem with really deep roots. I mean, you know, I can't tell you how many focus groups I do where they still bring up the bendy bananas and the curly cucumbers and all of this kind of stuff. It's really... Pint. Exactly. It has really resonated. Um, so I think that's the first thing. But I, at the same time, I think we need to acknowledge that the Internet obviously has some characteristics which have created really fertile ground for the spread um, and the kind of galvanization of, of, of um, misinformation and fake news. I mean, obviously, it's got quite low barriers to entry. There's this point around the kind of democratization of content production. Um, and also, you know, I mean, what it does so well is it creates space for the formation of communities around particular beliefs and issues. So I think all of that is, is fertile ground. Um, and, you know, I think conspiracy thinking and misinformation are not the same thing. And again, I think we should be clear about that. But um, they do share some similar characteristics, um, particularly because uh, they have the capacity to create a sense of contested narratives. So why is contested narratives a problem for our democracies? Well, Deliberative democracy is based around this sense of a shared community. I mean, that is absolutely fundamental to, to the way it has been designed to work, you know, and this is partly a sense of a kind of shared vision, a shared history, a shared sense of the nation. Um, but if we can't think of ourselves as part of um, something of one story, then it becomes difficult to govern. Um, and, you know, I think we have been eroding that sense of community in various ways. Um, 
And, you know, I think what's particularly concerning at the moment is that mistrust in government is incredibly high, um, and in fact, in a lot of the other institutions that underpin our democracy. And um, we know that there is a direct correlation and relationship between mistrust and also a kind of propensity to believe in misinformation and conspiracy thinking. Um, so I think we need to be aware that there is something kind of quite urgent about that particular confluence of things that are happening right now. Now, compared to particularly our American friends and actually even our French friends, um, Brits have been less inclined on the whole to indulge in outlandish conspiracy thinking. Um, but that's not to say that we don't have a, you know, a pretty large um, constituency of people who uh, believe in conspiracy theories pertaining to the state. Um, there was actually a YouGov poll that was done three months before the referendum, and it showed that more than half of British adults think that democracy is essentially a sham and that power will always be held by a relatively small group of people. Um, and, and perhaps even more concerningly, more than 40% at that time thought that the government was intentionally suppressing immigration statistics. Um, so, you know, why is that a problem? Well, that is a problem because, uh, you know, we, <laughs> if you start to believe that uh, the government is potentially suppressing immigration statistics, then what else could the government be capable of? How can we trust them to tell the truth on anything, really? Um, and it can proliferate in that sense. Now, I think nobody's been better at uh, identifying these, these sort of issues of, of unease and mistrust and polarization than, than the Russian state. Um, you know, their, their intention, obviously, is, is to uh, disrupt our political cultures and our <coughs> democracies, um, but their weapon is our own societies um, and the really deep cleavages that have been forming within them. So I think, you know, in this context, uh, misinformation is a really critical we uh, weapon to draw people in, draw in new constituency around these kind of divisive messages. Um, the goal here is not necessarily to convince. It's to sow seeds of doubt. And in that respect, there is a quite interesting comparison there. We're looking back at other sort of forms of campaigning that we've had over the past couple of decades, if you think about the anti-climate change lobby, for example, that, again, was their sort of strategy. Don't have to convince, just make sense that things are contested. Um, so I think increasing the number of people who are sort of uncertain about the government's messaging and sort of creating a sense of debate around issues that might once have held a kind of um, a, a clear position of fact, um, in this sense that misinformation can shift people from being sort of inherent trusters to mistrusters um, and, and into a space, and this is crucial, I think, where their political behavior becomes more unpredictable. Um, because, again, that is challenging for, for the process of governance. Um, so I think, you know, it, it, what makes people vulnerable to uh, misinformation and what is the most concerning thing, I think, I think the biggest problem is our own societies mm. and the problems we've created within them. And also, perhaps, the traditions that we have of um, of. Um, being mistrustful. I mean, if I think of what, is it, what does a university do, we teach people to ask difficult questions, to contest the facts, to always try to think of alternative positions. So in a way, we celebrate a kind of, well, we call it critical thinking, rather than being mistrustful. But I don't know if you feel that that is, as it were, being weaponized as well. 
I, well, I don't think that critical thinking is, be, is being weaponized. I think critical thinking is definitely has to be in the arsenal of potential solutions for this. Um, but I think there is a line and, 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 you know, it needs to be drawn between a sort of healthy skepticism and mistrust. Um, what is very interesting is to look back at um, the Taxpayers Alliance, the TPA, which is a sort of pressure group of um, kind of libertarian um, thinkers, I suppose, who, who uh, you know, in, in the 2000s, mm -hmm. uh, they became the most influential pressure group in Westminster. Now, a lot of people may not have heard them, um, but what they did was start, you know, start to build on that kind of skepticism. They wanted people to inherently associate the government with waste and, mm -hmm. and kind of lavish spending and ineptitude. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, they were incredibly successful right. in that. Right. And, and that story um, continues. I mean, do you want to say something also about the role of the politicians who are to respond to this um, deliberative public or critical mistrusting public? Are they, are they enough before us? Are they engaging in a way that is constructive? Well, I think, again, we've gone from one extreme to the other. I mean, something that comes up in, you know, my research that I do in, in Britain, but also in France and Germany and in America as well, is this perception that the two major parties in most of these countries have become too close, too indistinguishable from one another, and, that, and there was a lack of healthy debate. Mm -hmm. and we seem to have moved to a time now with, with quite increasing polarization where that mm. debate doesn't even seem to be possible because you're speaking completely different terms. Mm. Um, the landscape you're standing on is different. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we need to find a way to get back to that. The, I mean, uh, Germany is an example of somewhere where I'm incredibly concerned about this new mm -hmm. uh, GroKo, the new Grand Coalition. Um, you know, you have the two largest parties actually governing together at a time when every focus group I do around the country, the biggest concern is that there is a lack of healthy oppositional debate. Mm. So, I, you know, we, we have to try and find a middle ground between those two points. I think, I think many of us thought when the internet kind of first began and spread that that would be the place for exactly that kind of healthy debate. And, um, <laughs> yeah, well, so we look back after just a few years at a very different world. Charlie, um, what, what for you is the most urgent thing that we should be uh, thinking about now? Well, for me, it's changed, really, in the sense that, um, as Sophie says, and James as well, that, that there's nothing new about... Uh, misinformation or disinformation or fake news, but it's certainly much more on the policy agenda now. Um, and it, when this first really burst into my consciousness was I was in America after the um, last presidential elections <clears throat> at a conference of journalists, mainly liberal journalists, and they were in deep shock uh, for a series of reasons, partly because they had failed to realize that Donald Trump would be elected. Um, secondly, because uh, they, it was dawning on them the role of uh, the spread of viral misinformation and so on. And thirdly, because they felt that the, you know, the very nature of uh, democratic political journalism, as they understood it, uh, had been fatally undermined and they realized was going to be further challenged by people like uh, Donald Trump. And there was a kind of moral, well, not a moral panic, it was just real panic uh, going on amongst those people. And it, it struck me that um, would they be worried if uh, Hillary Clinton had 
edged it. If a few thousand votes had gone the other way, would they be concerned? Mm. And I felt they should be. Um, but beyond that, that uh, if you only identified this problem as being because of Donald Trump or because Brexit happened, then you were going to be ignoring the bigger structural issues going on here, which go way beyond uh, journalism. And we've talked about uh, the platforms, you know, their increasing power. Um, and in some senses, you know, the, the stories that have emerged about uh, how unconscious they are, never mind malign they are about what's happening uh, on their networks. And beyond that, <clears throat> decisions being made uh, by politicians. You've got a fake news inquiry in the UK. Um, you know, we've got congressmen and senators uh, making decisions. And um, we've got a whole raft of uh, regulators uh, and corporations making big decisions about uh, how information is going to evolve. And we've got huge technology. We've got social media and all that. But we've got artificial intelligence coming along. We've got blockchain yeah. coming along. So... Uh, the disruption is going to continue. And it just struck me that uh, we really needed to understand this in a much more, you know, holistic way. Uh, and it's a, it's a technical problem or a series of technical problems, um, but it's also a very human problem. That's why, you know, the Truth, Trust and Technology Commission has the truth and trust bit at the beginning, because those are very obviously quite subjective values. And I think the trust one is, is, is perhaps in some ways, the most difficult and the most interesting. So, I mean, for example, how many people here are on Facebook? <clears throat> how many of you trust Facebook? Keep your hands up if you trust Facebook. There you go. Um, but, of course, you do, tru you, do, you do trust Facebook. Yeah, somebody who obviously works for Facebook. Um, <laughs> even they don't trust Facebook anymore. But, of course, you do trust Facebook in many ways, in the sense that you use it all the time and it delivers certain things for you, uh, in the same way, perhaps, that you trust banks or you don't trust them as an institution, perhaps. Not surprisingly, you know, they, they, they screwed the world economy. Uh, but you use them every day and they deliver really important services for you. And I think that's one of the problems we've got here, which is that it's not simply a question of dealing with particular, you know, individual technical issues. It's about a whole relationship. I think not just, you know, James is a journalist, I'm a journalist, we're worried about that. Um, you know, politicians are worried about uh, how democracy works. But I think the most important bit, and this is the bit we're trying to get to in the, in the commission, uh, is what, uh, what, what does information mean for citizens, you know, the public? Uh, what use is it to them? What can they trust? How do they identify and connect to information that they find reliable and interesting and so on? Um, so, obviously it's political, and that means you've got to think hard about, well, what is the real problem that you are trying to solve here? Is it to stop uh, Kremlin propaganda? Is it to stop uh, nasty right or left-wing uh, talk? Uh, is it that uh, perhaps you can see this as a positive, that this is an opportunity where you can actually build better uh, information systems? It's not just about stopping bad stuff. Now, one of the, 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 the sort of principles that you have to debate is whether you should be acting at all, whether you can act. I mean, is Facebook, for example, just a force of nature? Is it like the weather? 
you know, that blows through our lives and we suffer or enjoy it. Well, of course it's not. You know, this is, this is a real tangible material thing uh, that we can shape. We can choose to, you know, uh, how Facebook is going to behave to some degree. Um, but if you're going to do that, uh, you have to start thinking about, you know, what kind of principles are you going to act upon? So if we use the word regulation... Um, and obviously regulation always implies intervention and control, but let's just say it's some kind of shaping of the, of the structures of journalism or uh, social networks and so on. What are the principles that you're going to do that upon? Is it just a sort of, you know, we don't really like Mark Zuckerberg? Uh, isn't, you know, that's not good enough. Um, would it be a principle, for example, of avoiding harm? And at the moment, most of the interventions seem to be about stopping them having bad stuff online in the same way that journalists are, are, are told not to defame people uh, or not to cause you know, public disorder. So it's a kind of negative thing. Or is there something positive uh, in a sense? There's kind of standards that we want, perhaps a bit more like uh, with public utilities or with food, that we have certain standards that we expect. And, of course, at that point, uh, you get into the problem of deciding who sets those standards. Uh, as I think James said, you know, do you want Mark Zuckerberg to decide what is good journalism or is bad journalism? And I think that's particularly important to remember. Uh, you know, our commission is looking at the UK, um, but globally, uh, Facebook in many countries is, is de facto the Internet, uh, so if you start to regulate that, then you are regulating uh, freedom of expression. And in many countries, uh, Facebook is the one place where people do have voice and where dissent uh, can be heard. And one of the things we've seen is that there's been... You, of course you can regulate the Internet. There's lots of people doing it. Uh, the Chinese are brilliant at it. Um, the Malaysian government has just, I think... Is it Malaysia that's just prosecuted somebody... Uh, for spreading fake news. It has an anti-fake news unit, and you won't be surprised to hear that, um, you know, perfectly reasonable journalists are now falling foul of, of that. So um, you may wish something to be done, nothing wrong with that, um, but you really have to think about on what principles you want it done and what the outcomes are going to be. So, just to end, obviously... I'm leading a commission, very proud, great colleagues involved, great people like James uh, contributing to it. And generally speaking, if you're doing an LSE commission and you've got a report, you sort of have to come up with some ideas for doing stuff. But this might be one where uh, we have to think about not just not doing stuff, but when you might do it. Um, so I'm not going to say what we're going to put in the report, because I literally do not know, which is a bad thing for a journalist and an academic to say, but I really I do not know uh, what's going to be in it. It could be something on a quite a grand scale uh, that talks, I think there's an argument that we're at a, a moment where, you know, media information is so important and so integral uh, to our whole lives that we almost need something a bit like the beverage report, something that looks at the fundamentals. Uh, and then, a bit like the beverage report, other things may get built upon that. 
in the case of beverage, you know, the welfare state. Um, but, uh, you know, that's slightly grand. But I think that's, <laughs> that's, that's the sort of scale of the task and the difficulty of it. And it's really, really interesting. And the more kind of feedback we get, the better for it. I think Charlie would just like to, you know, I am William take beverage. full and personal responsibility. If journalism isn't fixed within three months of the report coming out, all on him. Right. It's, you know, it's very good of him to cover the other commissioners. You know, we offered, but all Charlie. <laughs> Yeah, but you also give a sense of some of the problems. So we don't want Facebook to fix the problem. We don't want the state to fix the problem. I don't know if we think the public is going to fix the problem. Um, I think this is a moment to turn to the audience and see if they know. Um, as we've said, kind of what, what is the problem? I and mean, what do you see as the pressing problem? And as a commission, we've kind of gone round putting the spotlight in different places. Um, we can be a little decentered by saying... Some of these problems, when you look at them closely, they've been there for a long time. You know, what, what really is new? What makes things feel like they're a big challenge now? And then where do you think we should be putting the spotlight? Maybe we do want Facebook to fix some stuff, whatever Charlie says. Maybe we think the journalists should be doing more. So I'm going to um, throw this open to you. Um, and there are some people with roving microphones. And if you could just say your name and affiliation when you start. And, uh, well, there's a very fast lady down here, so I'll ask her to kick us off. Thank you. Hi, I'm Masuma Torfe. I'm at LSE. Um, I'm, I'm a journalist, and um, basically I uh, find it almost impossible uh, to know how to find what you call the truth or the fact or whatever. Um, and one of the main reasons uh, is, is not so much fake news, uh, but much more to do with intelligence um, and uh, misinformation and things like that. Of course, fake news is there too, but it's more easy to spot in a way. Um, and if you are, for instance, as unfortunate as I am as having to write about places like the Middle East, uh, like yeah. Iran and Syria and places like that, then you find that there are so many uh, so many games being played, it's mm -hmm. almost impossible to know who's telling the truth. Mm -hmm. And the countries that are playing these intelligence games, they all have very sophisticated uh, TV, radio, web pages mm. uh, with brilliant discussions and all these kinds of things with all their own types mm -hmm. of people uh, uh, talking in, in them. So, so there are industries of misinformation. So exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's every... So you've, you've got the shallow writer, you've got the mm -hmm. mistakes that are being made, you've got the fake news, you've got the uh, intelligence games, you've got, you've got all these different games. And every time you are writing a report, you have to check all of these. Mm -hmm. And you have to, uh, to, to know because you have to address it. Yeah. And it takes a lot of time. Right. I mean, for the smallest thing that you want to write, it takes a lot of time to know which one you have to address, which is intelligence, which is yeah. fake news. So, um, I, I mean, I'd like Do you to address this issue as well, if you yeah. I know it's... it's <laughs> I, I think this is a painful plea from a journalist in the field, yes. Can I, can I jump on that? Uh, um, you may, and then we're going to go back to the, yes. So I'm just sort of, I think there's a particular issue sort of with a lot of reporting, especially around Syria, 
where, you know, people tend to forget, people sort of think of Syria as if it was sort of Ethiopia in the 80s or something. It's an advanced country with an advanced economy, and it had a very, very good set of spying infrastructure in place, uh, sort of tracing of activists, all of this. Um, you know, very interesting stuff going on with how they surveil mobile phone equipment, etc., which means its information sort of unit is similarly advanced. And it really taps into what Sophie was saying of, you know, together with kind of the way Russia spreads information, it's not about getting everyone to believe one particular lie. It's about just casting enough doubt on, every, on anything so that people can always what about. You know, when Russia, when sort of Russian-backed militias shot down MH17, Russia put out about 30 rival theories at various levels of nonsense. They didn't try and build a narrative. They just tried to shoot down uh, or add to the ones that were there. And what's particularly toxic in this world is just asking questions. Yeah. And it's something that people like Robert Fisk or others have got very good at. They don't offer an alternative version of events. They don't try and build a narrative. They just sort of use something that seems very reasonable. Who can be against healthy scepticism? Who can be against asking a question? And they use it to poke holes in what really happened to prop up people like Assad, to prop up Russia. You know, you can do it with Russia. You know, you can do it with the poisoning of the Scripples. You can sort of say, you know, wouldn't Russia know better than to do it? You know, isn't it a bit strange that they'd do something that would so obviously be pinned on them? Why would they want that to happen? Wouldn't, you know, they want their, their people to be there. And isn't it funny that it happened only 10 miles away from Port and Down? I haven't made a single allegation there. You can't argue with me on that because I haven't made an argument. Mm. And yet I'm trying to give you the impression that Britain did it in that set mm. of questions. And so we have this really toxic thing, especially for people trying to report yep. in the Middle East and on Russia, of that just asking questions sort of toxicity. And clearly some dissent among the journalist community, yes. I can see, yes. I'm going to take, um, so I see several hands, I'm going to... Um, Lady there. And I might, maybe we'll just take three and then come back. So please, yeah, please ask your question. And then, sorry, yeah. Uh, gentleman there is very patient and woman in the middle, yeah, in red. Hi, my name is Katharina Schmoll. I'm at SOAS, the Department for Global Media and Communications. Uh, thank you to the panel for sharing your insights. Uh, I think what you really need to focus on at the moment as well as media literacy you know, to get not only to universities, but also really to schools and try and, you know, educate people what it means to be an informed citizen um, in relation to media, that we really try and get people to understand not only looking at information, but who's behind writing an article, who's paying for it, what could be, like, intense motivation. So I think that's really important now. Fantastic. That's the question I would have asked if I... But, <laughs> uh, yes. And there, yeah, thank you. Um, uh, my name is Alex. I'm a student at, uh, at Sixth Form. <clears throat> in, um, in a country that a lot of people would say is a plutocracy, myself including, um, would you not is say a... that uh, in a country that a lot of people would say is a plutocracy, not yep. a democracy, uh, would you not say that seeming as uh, all of the platforms for main media like newspapers are governed by the 0.1%, um, would you not say that the main issue is that they clearly have an agenda for instance, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, as a rule, would like to transfer money from the top 1% to the bottom, and um, they would like to stop that uh, to an extent. Would you not say that is the main issue? Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Thank you. And uh, woman in red, just halfway down. 
Uh, I'm Alafia. I'm from the global campaign group Avaz. Um, and my question is about fake accounts and the role that the platforms play in allowing fake accounts. Um, last year, Facebook quietly announced that they had 270 million fake accounts and duplicate accounts on their platform. That's bigger than their entire user base in the, in the North Americas. And what these fake accounts can do is, you know, pour the kind of poison into the cleavages in our society. They don't even have to be real people. So there's a very tangible thing that platforms can do in deleting fake accounts and bots. And I wanted to know the panel's view on how big of a problem do you see uh, that fake accounts and bots play in the disinformation universe? Brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, so don't feel you all need to answer all questions, but pick your question as it were. I mean, I don't know, Sophie, if you want to yeah. kick off. Um, so just on this media literacy point, I mm. absolutely agree. Um, Demos has been banging on about this for a long time, uh, even before people started talking about all of this kind before of stuff, cool. before it was cool. Um, I think one... <laughs> literacy has always been cool. One critical thing that uh, isn't often discussed about this is, you know, we always look to education. I mean, it's always the easiest policy response is mm. to say, let's put it in the school curriculum. Mm. What about adults? Mm. You know, what about the entire population over 18? Mm. How are we going to reach them? So I think that is the big, big challenge. Mm. Um, if you look at all the surveys, they will show that young people are much more skilled for the digital age. They actually have higher levels of media literacy. They are more likely to be skeptical about content online, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's the question we need to start turning our minds towards. And uh, mm. it is difficult for the government to think about that. Um, they haven't really thought about adult education outside of the kind of health space. Mm. We might need to start putting some kind of behavioral psychology onto it, the nudge unit onto that kind of thing, but um, that's an area we need to look into more. Um, and they haven't actually put it in the school curriculum. I mean, yes. despite it being well, constantly exactly. called for, exactly. but it isn't there. It's, well, I mean, you, we end up with this, there's this, you know, PSHE, this one tiny unit where we dump sex ed, alcohol, gambling, like every possible experience you might be exposed to in your life um, <laughs> in this hour. I mean, there's no compulsory regulation around that. I mean, this is a whole other issue. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, that's where it might go if it does come into school. So that's clearly not going to solve the problem either. Um, just quickly on this fake accounts, I think, you know, it's obviously a huge issue that its main um, I guess value in the misinformation marketplace is this sort of pile-in effect. It, it amplifies things. It allows things to scale up very quickly. You can draw attention to particular narratives. Um, and its, it's, it's contribution is to create a sense of consensus um, and, and to galvanize a sense of, of, of acceleration towards particular ideas. So it is hugely problematic. That said, again, um, I will probably always say that uh, we, we can't just blame all the problems on fake accounts and bots because actually a lot of the content that's being shared is just by living, breathing humans who walk among us. Um, so I think, again, we need to think outside of the sphere there. Um, 
But can't we nonetheless, I mean, thinking, this, okay, this is going to be a complex problem with many moving parts, but can't we just make Facebook delete the false accounts? I don't know, Charlie, is that the kind of regulation that we could imagine expecting a Facebook without regulating speech? Well, James knows more about that than I do. I mean, there, there, there are problems around, um, you know, for example, anonymity, that, again, anonymity can be really handy for people who, you know, are dissenting. Uh, it, not such an issue in this country particularly, um, but, you know, certainly in other countries, you don't necessarily want uh, people to be identifiable and you certainly don't want Facebook uh, to go around telling the authorities um, mm. who the people are on their platform. Mm. Sorry, not just Facebook, Twitter or, or the others. Mm. Um, the, I, think the po I wanted to take the point about the, the 1%. Mm. Um, sorry? 0.1%. 0.1%, yeah. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> the 1% of the 1%. Yeah, I'm part of the 1%. I'm not quite part of the 0.1%. <laughs> I think what's interesting, um, I think you're absolutely right that in the end, this is a lot to do with power, you know. And I think one of the interesting things we're seeing is that, uh, you know, some of these technologies that, you know, have given people greater voice and expression and so on are now being used the other way around. So, you know, the, the bots and so on, but also using uh, the data that uh, authoritarian governments can get to identify you know, dissenters and so on. What I think is interesting, though, which I don't think qu I'd quite go with you on the sort of that there's some sort of shadowy conspiracy type, not conspiracy, but, you know, elite, is the elite are actually screwed up quite badly. Um, you know, the City of London was, generally speaking, massively in favour of Remain. Oops. <laughs> you know. Um, Theresa May's election campaign. Whoosh. You know, so I think it's actually a lot of instability, uh, and where there's instability, there are opportunities for, you know, quite interesting innovation and change in society. Um, but I think, generally speaking, the uncertainty has been bad for everybody. Um, where I, I think you've got a—I don't know if this was your point—but I think there is a big problem around um, openness and diversity. So, in my industry of journalism, I think there's definitely a problem of a sort of very homogenous group at the top who charmingly um, Sophie described as me, really. Um, but um, there's a, a general problem that if we, for example, expect Facebook to start setting standards about what is acceptable speech, what are acceptable speakers, um, then we may actually be pandering to a more restrictive, I'm not saying the 0.1%, but to a more restrictive, think, uh, you know, yeah. forum. But the, the request, in a way, just, just thinking of the fake accounts, was that at least those speakers should be human. But, yes, yeah, I just wanted to kind of lead yeah. into um, James, yeah. who has just said his next book is actually on Oh, the... it's not the next book. I'm just saying it's um, bots, okay. bots is sort of my area. Bots is your next passion, yes. Um, yes, okay. well, it's, it's a previous passion, as I, right. I was something of a bot hunter during um, Brexit. Um, 
I mean, the issue is, I think a lot of people sort of talk about lumped together fake accounts, anonymous accounts, and bots. I think journalists, we have a real snobbery about anonymous accounts because we get a lot of online abuse from them. And so we have a habit to just say, well, why don't you use your bloody real name? And, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, no one has a reason to. And it's an extraordinary position of privilege because also journalists dive on a stupid remark that someone who stacks shelves at Asda make and they lose their job within 10 minutes. Um, People in the NHS can't express political opinions. There's sort of millions of people, even in this country, who would have a good reason to not want their name on their social media account. And I will fervently defend anonymous accounts for a long time. And where it gets trickier is there are bots. Most of them are actually just spam. They're trying to sell you something. They're trying to sell you, you know porn or dodgy medicine or this kind of stuff some of them are run by russia some of them are run by other places and they are trying to influence politics um and people who try and deny that and say there's no effect talk nonsense unfortunately almost all of the reporting on them is absolutely terrible and overhyped uh, the sunday times piece was uh, the sort of suggesting bots were backing corbyn one of the ones they evidenced was a bot that was one of 6,000 retweets on a Jeremy Corbyn tweet. I mean, it's just ludicrous. That's showing you nothing. And so the exaggerated, nonsensical accounts kind of give us a real problem because having tracked very closely these bots that are trying to influence the election, they're rubbish at it. They're genuinely terrible. Most of their sort of tweets are sort of 10 to 12 retweets. And when you look at those, it's other bots. Um, Like, there's sort of this sort of, you would think if you read some papers that there's this amazing, sophisticated bot network that's taken over your politics. The the worst effect bots have had on our politics is the overhyping of them has made us all start screaming bot at each other. Yes, though, Twitter and Facebook need to do a lot more to delete them, but as much so that we can all stop going on about them and realise that there are a lot of people on the internet that we disagree with, and they're not all being paid by Russia. Though maybe we fear that the bots are going to get better. That and is that also this an is, issue. This is the moment when we, you know, if we could do something now, yes. we could forestall something getting much worse. But, yeah, so I'm going to come back to the audience. Um, and, um, okay, <laughs> there's lots of hands, so I'm going to take a three. So, gentlemen there. Um, sorry, one at the front, now I've pointed to you, and a lady there. Thank you. Um, Hi, my name's Alex Spilius. I was formerly a journalist, now a consultant, okay. still doing some journalism. I maybe just try and strike a slightly optimistic note. I mean, I, I was in Africa recently in Sierra Leone working on an election where WhatsApp was the dominant social media. There was right. <clears throat> all sorts of fake stories, um, fake mm. audio clips, fake photos flying around. Um, people would sort of, you know, put fake blood and say, such and such, the Greens did this to red and so on. And after a while, there was a danger that was going to inflame the situation, but after a while, people, this is anecdotal, if you just talk to locals, they just seem, seem to think, well, there's so much nonsense, and the Greens are saying this about the Reds, and the Reds are saying this about the Greens every day. They can't both be right. Mm-hmm. So they did start to ignore mm-hmm. all the nonsense mm-hmm. after a while. And there's very good local radio that kept trying to keep the peace and reminded people to... Mm-hmm listen to the election commission and so on. Mm-hmm. So I wondered if you, in your research, have had any sense or any ground for optimism that, and I like the suggestion that maybe less might be more in terms of regulation, that people will learn to judge fake news better. I'm mm. sure they might need help doing that. But yeah. there is some yeah. cause for optimism that way. Yeah. Great <clears> question. <throat> thank you. Yes. Um, okay, thank you. Hello. Um, I'm a journalist. Um, I'm from Leeds here. 
uh, you mentioned briefly about the anti-fake news from Malaysia. Rizal, yeah. um, you mentioned briefly about the anti-fake news bill that was passed recently in Malaysia before, just before the election. Uh-huh. Do you see that as something that maybe countries should aspire in the future to maybe look at or address um, fake news? Or should there be a m- milder version of that to also encourage um, freedom of speech? You know, but how, what is the um, ultimate goal in terms of regulating and making sure that um, fake news are kept in, in, in check? Um, um, at the same time... Um, you mentioned something about media literacy, Sophie, um, about education. And I think the, the question is, you know, who will be able to determine what is fake news and what's not fake news? Because we as journalists, sometimes in the newsroom, we find it very difficult to say, is this fake news? And a lot of people has to get come together and to figure out whether it's fake news or not. And that is taking out a lot of resources. So when it comes to media literacy... You know who has the capability or ability to do that really fast, and in the twenty-four hour news cycle, um, you know who has the ability to do that. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's, those are my two. Thank um, you points very of much. Can I just Thank come you. back to? You? I mean, no one is mentioning fact checkers. I don't know if <laughs> they are the part of the solution to support the. Okay, well, we'll bring that back to the panel. But uh, uh, yes. Woman there. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, hi, my name is Claudia. I'm a media and communication student at LSE. So you mentioned at the beginning about uh, the crisis in the business model of some news industry. So I wanted to have your point of view about more collaborative business model, uh, such as Wiki Tribune, for example. Do you think this is uh, eventually a solution to make it more collaborative and more uh, transparent as well with the public and eventually uh, with the issue of trust? Mm. Excellent. Thank you very much. Who would like to um, kick off? Can I, uh, I, can I do um, Rizal's question? And, uh, you can, yeah. Pass, pass the other harder ones to other people. So, um, <laughs> I mean, we have, we have a pretty simple way to hold journalists accountable now, and it's that if I write something false uh, and it's malicious, you can libel, you can sue me for libel, and I will lose all my money. Um, I think that's quite a good sanction. Um, I would sort of like to see actually um, the press regulators beef themselves up a bit more. Um, Mm -hmm. I think, frankly, the current state where you can run a splash front page that's nonsense and dangerous Mm -hmm. and then a tiny box on page two six weeks later is derisory and Mm -hmm. it's, you know, I have no compunction of how editors with a straight face say, why don't people trust us when they pull that level of shit? Um, like, honestly, it bugs me. The papers lean to the right, yes, sure. But if they want to say we should be enlightened self-regulation and we shouldn't have government step in, they need to stop acting like kids getting away with shit. So, like, it really makes me furious. On the sort of fake news side of it and the doing it in real time, um, BuzzFeed, where I actually used to work, has one of the best newsrooms for real-time breaking news because what they do is they immediately put a reporter on looking at the hoaxes and the fake news, and it's usually a specialist who's quite used to it. So every shooting and every natural disaster, there are certain people's photos who will get shared, either as the attacker or as a missing cousin or something. And so these people are so used to it that they are put in the sort of main reporting channels 
and essentially new stuff comes up and if it's true it gets put in a blog and if it's false it gets put in a separate post so that you immediately in building in real time have here's what we know about this shooting or this incident and here's what's false about this shooting and this incident and it's part of the same reporting process you know everything ends up in one bucket or the other Mm -hmm. and i think that rather than stepping back and sort of 72 hours too late doing it Mm. you've got to actually be that very real time and actually make it part of the main reporting process not separate Mm. I think for a lot of things that works quite well. Mm. Two strategies. So fact checkers in the newsroom checking the news as it comes in. Stronger press regulation. I don't actually know if that's what Wiki Tribune is going to do. I don't know if um, Charlie, you know how they're going to work. Yeah. No. I is mean, it going to? Mean, I mean, literally, some of my best friends work for Wiki Tribune. Thought they uh, might. Literally, I used to work with them. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. But no, I don't think they're the answer at all, actually. I think they're, okay. they're a very good thing in themselves. Mm. Um, but I think that... And fact-checking is... Well, you know, isn't that sort of what journalism was supposed to do generally? <laughs> yeah, you know, but now no one has kind any of fact-checking, time. And... It was a, a good thing. Mm. Um, and I think, actually, the, the, speaking to your point, the, the, the good news is, interestingly, that um, fake news has sort of been good news for journalism and for media literacy. Mm. I think we're already seeing that, um, you know, the news media, the mainstream news media, boo hiss, um, (laughs) has actually been getting its act together, partly because, as James implies, it sort of hasn't been perfect itself in the past and so realises that if it's going to differentiate itself uh, from, you know, the evil, um, you know, alternative stuff and the fake news stuff and those dreadful platforms you know that it has to actually start acting more responsibly itself but also more seriously it has to come up with some really good ways to connect to people to uh, show that, that that its journalism is more believable and more credible it has to be more transparent and more accountable and not hide away uh, if it makes a mistake um, so I think you can already see that uh, on the, the news media side, sorry, Damien, and, um, but also on the public side, I think it's really interesting that not just in schools and colleges, but generally uh, people are much more aware of the fact that there is disinformation <clears throat> and that so far, and so they're becoming a bit savvier about that. And I'm now going to Hello, Dave. <laughs> let, let me welcome, Good let me welcome um, Damien Collins, um, Conservative MP for Folkestone and Hyde, as I said earlier, and chair of the um, Digital Culture, Media and Sport Common Select Committee that's been hearing um, so much evidence. So, um, yeah, so we've been discussing what might be urgent for the um, Commission, more importantly, what's urgent to deal with the problem of misinformation um, for the country, and we've been a bit international. Do you want to, have you caught your breath? Yeah, you well, also it seems quite of... timely as well, because the breaking news is that Cambridge Analytica and SEL has been closed down. <laughs> wow. So, um, and I think we have to make sure that that doesn't mean that this is an opportunity to try and close down the evidence trail of what Mm -hmm. these companies were involved with in terms of uh, communications, use of uh, data to target messaging. Um, I think this is, certainly as the committee inquiry has gone on, we've gone from looking at fake news as a pure category Mm -hmm. of um, lies and deceptions, which we know the Pope didn't endorse Donald Trump. We can can deal with that. Um, So what, what powers should we have to stop lies being spread, basically? 
but I think there's this bigger issue of um, the spreading of hyper-partisan content. Mm-hmm. It's might, it might be a grain of truth in it, it might be massively distorted, but its power is not the individual story, but the ability to relentlessly target people with that information. And the reason that the scrutiny rightly fell on companies like Cambridge Analytica and their use of Facebook data was the massive power they built up within their data systems and how that could be used and whether mm-hmm. that was legal. Uh, and certainly the ethics of the people who are doing it. Um, and I think this has um, become... The work of the Commission has grown exponentially since it was right. set up yes. you know, for, this, for this reason, because it's not, um, it's not, I think it's not just enough to look at uh, the pure form uh, of, of fake news. It's not even just enough to look at the responsibilities and the obligations of the big tech platforms to act against the distribution of bad content. I think even the questions we did with Mike Shretford from Facebook last week, should political advertising be in the newsfeed? Mm-hmm. Should people have the power to turn off political advertising, which they don't at the moment? Mm-hmm. So if you're being relentlessly targeted with hyper-partisan messages, you know, anti-Islam messages, anti-immigrant mm-hmm. messages, you can't stop receiving them. Um, mm-hmm. no, the platform doesn't let you do it. So the ethics of that, but then also the role of these companies and agencies in fanning these campaigns too. But mm-hmm. I think that, uh, So I think these are... These are three massively important areas, and by the day, it grows more interesting and complex. It absolutely does. And we, I mean, we, we call for responsibility. Um, I don't know if responsibility is going to be enough, and if you can say anything as yet about what kinds of recommendations your committee is going to be making, but I think um, we've, we maybe feel we've been calling for responsibility from the platforms for... A while is that? They yeah. never. Will, they never. Never is maybe too strong a word. On the whole, mm. they don't move unless they feel they have to, mm. and they move to avoid regulation. Mm. We've seen that with combating you know, pirated content, uh, you know, dealing with illicit material, mm. um, messages of hate. You know, yeah. um, the big debate in America, which we're having here now, about the transparency around political communications. Yeah. It's the threat of legislation that makes them move. Um, in Germany, they are much more, Facebook are very effective at taking down hate speech because mm. it's the law, and there mm-hmm. are big fines if they don't do it. Mm-hmm. And they behave in a way that they don't do in other European countries. So mm-hmm. um, I think we have to look at the, the legal liability to act against harmful content, and I would mm-hmm. include you know, disin- cam- mass campaigns of disinformation as, mm-hmm. as, as a category of harmful content. Um, one thing that has happened, though, um, is that during the course of our um, inquiry, is the government is now tabling amendments to its own data protection bill, which will be debated on Wednesday next week, to massively increase the powers of the Information Commissioner. Mm. So the Information Commissioner will avoid the ludicrous situation where it took five days for the Information Commissioner to get a warrant to right. go into Cambridge Analytica's offices. Mm-hmm. She, what we'll have was, will be no notice inspections um, of data compliance. On the whole, our data protection laws are, are, are rest on the company's complying and telling us they're complying mm. without us having the power to check that they are. Mm. And that has to end, mm. I think. I think we've, we've reached a moment of maturity, I think, in the last couple of months in particular, although it's been building up to it for a while, mm. where we can look at this and actually, you know, we need an independent regulator to have the power to go behind the curtain, to see what they're doing, to take data, to inspect it, to analyse it, um, and to check that the data protection rules are being complied with. Otherwise, we would just have to take Facebook's word for it that they are and other companies' word too. So I think that is something, you know, well, as long as the House approved those amendments on Wednesday, but there seems to be cross-party support for them, that could give us one of the, tu- one of the toughest enforcement regimes in the world, actually. Um, yeah. We would have done something that other European countries are still talking about doing. So just one question on the ICO. Yeah. Um, it's, all, it's great giving it more power, but yeah. it's 
chronically underfunded to even really enforce mm. the current regime. I mean, it's yeah. it's quite a weak regulator, not just for that reason. It's, it's this sort of extra... It's this extra stuff, which sounds great. Is it going to come with a sort of commensurate beefing up of its yeah. funding and its staff? What, what the ICA rec recognises, and the government does too, is that this is... The investigations they're currently working on are massively important, and mm. certainly the ICO's reports later this month into... Uh, data on elections, I think, mm. would be really significant. Mm. And I think, I think everyone recognises that the ICO has to be able to follow this inquiry through and bring about criminal charges for you know, breach of the data protection laws if, if, if they can identify that. Mm. And that if we fail to complete the inquiry adequately, um, then it would really be sending a big notice out saying that we can't, can't police can't police right. it. Yes, right. And that would be a total failure at this moment in time. So they, they have been given the additional resources that they've asked for. Mm -hmm. um, this is the, they've got 40 people working on the current, current investigations. Mm -hmm. They're cooperating with other law enforcement agencies on it. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the biggest in, uh, data investigation in Europe. And the ICO is the, big, is the biggest, biggest body in terms of resources in Europe. But mm -hmm. in the future, it may need to get bigger still. Mm -hmm. But, but our, our job, I think, the important thing I think about the inspections is that, like any regulator, you can't stand over the shoulder of everyone working in the sector but if they know you've got the power to come in at no notice any moment, as, and as in with a criminal investigation, to seize data that mm -hmm. is relevant to an inquiry, that is mm -hmm. a big incentive for people to comply with mm -hmm. the law. Mm -hmm. So it sounds a little make or break, but we're getting optimistic, as some of the questions were earlier. I'm going to... Um, OK, so lots of hands have now gone up. Um, I'm going to take the um, woman at the front um, and two people right there at the back. Hello, Please. I'm Sally Ann Wilson. I'm CEO of the Public Media Alliance, which is the largest global association of public broadcasters. It won't be a surprise that I, picking up on what Charlie said, public broadcasting was seen as bad, dead, old-fashioned, not something we talked about, but actually a lot of its principles. And I'm not talking about the BBC. We have 102 members worldwide. Mm -hmm. Not all of them are great. But on an index, they have to sort of subscribe to certain key characteristics as they move from public broadcasting to public media. Mm -hmm. We support them going onto platforms like Facebook. Um, it's how those platforms are used. We, you know, if, if we, there's been even this evening a blurring between the profession of journalism, which most of you are about, mm -hmm. and anybody being able to be a journalist and what we used to refer to as citizen journalism. Right. There are some fabulous examples. Um, Taiwan, who take democracy pretty seriously, have got the most amazing platform for citizen journalists who have to contribute mm -hmm. to news stories and how that builds. There are some incredible ideas that are not just in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, some very small broadcasters, public media organisations, some of them are even broadcasters, have great ideas that would take forever to get through focus mm -hmm. groups on the BBC, but actually support professionalism in journalism, which we haven't really focused on enough here. Yeah. It's the, the focus on the content mm -hmm. and how that then goes back into media literacy, into the community. And there's thousands more of those ideas that I'll submit and share yeah. with you, but no, it's something we need to think about. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, yes, so two right at the back. <laughs> Not sure who's going to run up the stairs fast now. Say, oh, no, okay. Thank you. Well, all right. And the, yeah, no, please do. And then we'll take the two at the back. Uh, okay. John Strafford. Um, <clears throat> there is not an expert economist in the world uh, that can accurately forecast the economic future. I quote Mervyn King, uh, former governor of the Bank of England. 
uh, he went on to say, uh, and anybody who says that as a result of Brexit and coming out of the European Union, in the year 2030, the average family will be £4,354.50p worse off, is suffering from delusion. And yet that is what a Chancellor of the Exchequer said, a former Chancellor of the Exchequer said. So the question is, what is fake news and what is delusional opinion? And how do you distinguish between the two? Uh, because I'm afraid to say journalists, academics, uh, uh, politicians come out with this junk time and time again. And on, uh, Sophie Gaston mentioned climate uh, change. I read uh, a little while ago in the national newspaper that in the year 2300, as a result of climate change, there's only going to be half the fish in the Atlantic than there is today. And I thought to myself, who's been counting them? <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, so yeah. perhaps the answer comes to for the people to decide which sites they can trust and are accurate. And the Taxpayers' Alliance, uh, which Sophie mentioned, from my uh, viewpoint, has never been accused of being inaccurate. In, its, uh, in what it's been publishing, uh, and finding out where the power lies and the vested interests in putting over these things. And perhaps we could have a British standard for a site that is true and accurate. A, a coat uh, mark a for truth. It's been, uh, it has been discussed. Thank you very much. Um, and, yes, the woman at the back. <laughs> so I just want to say, Damien Collins, you've been doing a fantastic job. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel, we're, we're, we're passing the microphone to the very, very back because people are being very patient right there. I know. They're all the way at the top. Thank you. Hello. I'm Angie Pitt from Newswise. Uh, we are a news literacy project for primary schools run by the Guardian Foundation, the National Literacy Trust and the PSHE Association. Um, we've already identified that education, not just of children, but of adults too, is essential uh, to tackle the spread of fake news. But also we know that lots of the arguments are very complex and very nuanced and honestly they cause not just children but adults to disengage with news altogether they decide that if they can't understand what's real and what's not they just won't engage with news at all um, and what we do need are really simple messages uh, that resonate with everyone so like James's count to five before you share a news story so my question is if you could give one really simple piece of advice to a 10-year-old or to a member of the public around fake news, what would it be? Mm, okay, thank you. Um, yes, one more at the back while, while you're up there. Thank you. And then we're going to um, come back to the panel. Hello. Um, my name is Evan Fowler. Um, I actually um, I, I'm, was associated with the founding of three different newspapers in Hong Kong, um, one, of, one of which was at one stage the second most read paper in Hong Kong and uh, which shut down. So I'm not speaking as a journalist. Um, I'm certainly not speaking as a member of the 1%. Uh, I'm probably closer to the, the 1% um, with the least income. Uh, however, I'm also speaking as someone who cares enormously about my home and about the people who live there in the community. Now, um, 
I'm, I come back to the question of this talk, restoring trust. Uh, it, it's all well and good to sit here in London and talk about trust in the media here when in different parts of the world the relationship we have with information, because I think this is the critical thing here, it's not just about what journalists do, and it's not just about how people read, but I think it's how, what relationship we have with information. How does the government view information? How does our society view information? How do readers view information? And... Um, I've, you know, obviously over the course of um, being involved with papers, we get a lot of 50 centers, we get a lot of bots. I think tackling all of these issues, um, all of these problems, is very reactionary. With information, quite often, the impact is immediate. I'm sure, as all journalists in this room will know, the, the first person to report a story, that's when you get the spike. Mm. If we tackle the bots, if we are always being reactive, in some ways we're not having the impact we want. Um, I think about the Facebook as well. Um, it's, it's wonderful to, to, to try and regulate, but what has Facebook done? They've just moved their servers. You know, we're actually looking at a global problem. And the very last thing, I, I mean, one thing which I personally think was... Um, really getting to the gist of this was what Charlie Beckett said about really needing to go back to basics to um, look at what are the principles that we feel underlie our relationship with information and potentially looking at this globally, not just within the context of, of the UK or Europe. Um, thank, thank, thank you. I think okay. um, you've, you've, made, you've taken us very broad um, and very global, and I know Charlie wants to say this commission is just about Britain, but um, it is a global problem, and it is, of course, a connected um, infrastructure with many um, complexities. So um, I'm just looking at the time, and I think I'm going to give the panel the, the chance to respond to the four points that were just made, but that might be um, then coming to the end of our time. So, Sophie, can can I kick off with, um, do you want to pick any of those questions as, like, well, priority? I'll com combine a couple. Um, I think as to points one and two, uh, mm. who has been most obsessed with the idea of fake news and social media? It's the traditional media. I mean, it's, it's, they've been absolutely obsessed. And, you know, I think we need to be incredibly careful that this doesn't become a dichotomy of sort of traditional media good and social media really bad. Um, firstly, because the majority of content that people are accessing on social media is still from traditional media organizations. Um, so I think we need to make sure that in all of these processes, we're also um, still critiquing the practices of traditional media. That doesn't mean that we should throw the baby out with the bathwater and, and in the same way that, yes, we should say there are problems with our democracy. We should still keep having those conversations, but just because populism is on the rise, you know, we, we shouldn't be blowing up the system. Um, so, you know, I think something that in, in my 
recent report on the mediating populism was that, you know, these traditional media organizations need to be updating their standards and their methods of practice into the digital age. And, you know, a lot of the ways in which they operate in newsrooms, BuzzFeed is obviously very different because it's a kind of digital native. But um, a lot of the others, they're still trying to apply this sort of blunt instrument to the past to a completely different landscape. Um, and uh, just on this point about... Uh, I guess on, on critical thinking and media literacy, I guess the one thing I would encourage is read things you disagree with. And if you are reading things and you disagree with some, them, sometimes you're probably doing it right. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Damien, um, we've, we've talked about the problem so far, I think, in terms of what is happening with social media platforms, Facebook, and so forth. I'm, I'm very struck by Sally's question about all the other media providers, and especially some of the small public or publicly oriented service providers, public media. I mean, do we need to think about the entire ecology of media and information, or is it better to focus on the particular kind of presenting problem in front of us? Well, I think we have to recognize is that if we're focused on truth, how do people get access to the truth? There are a lot of people out there that don't want you to have access to the truth. Mm. Now, I'm not talking about public debate. As John Strafford rightly pointed out, um, you know, two people with good intentions can have wildly different views on the same issue mm-hmm. and so carefully select the facts to support their argument. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all, it will be factually based, but it's very different. But there's that. But there's, there's another group of people out there who knowingly want to spread disinformation. You know, Russia mm-hmm. doesn't, Russia's happy with confusion. It's, it it's not seeking to prove one thing or another with all of these, you know, like the Salisbury poisoning, for example. It's just seeking to, to, sort, to sow doubts. Um, mm-hmm. And there are people, and there are some people that spread lies either as propaganda or to make money, you know. Mm. And the concern is if the volume of this, of the rubbish, is so great that people find it hard to tell the truth from the rubbish and they can't, they can't choose between the two, that, that, that's the problem. And then the issue then is not about the size of the news organisation, but I think the, the trust you have in it and your ability to identify it as a news organisation, be it a respected citizen journalist or the, or the BBC. And a lot of the problems with disinformation is that lack of transparency. Um, so people can't, you know, people have got people can't see where it's coming from. They don't understand where they're receiving it. It might not even be a real news organisation at all, but just a, a fake site p- pumping out fake information. So people do need more of those cues, the ability to understand why they're receiving the information they're receiving and who's sending it to them, and then they can weigh it up. Now, in the referendum, if you were a Brexiteer, you probably didn't put that much weight on what George, George Osborne said, because you knew he was on the other side. Uh, you were seeking to make an argument you didn't agree with. So you weighed that up. At least you knew where it was coming from. You know, the issue is where you don't know where the information's coming from. It's obscured, uh, and people use that obscurity to spread disinformation and lies. And I think we have to recognise, too, that, yes, the, the, the quality journalism costs money. You know, it's easy to be first with the news and, and wrong. Mm-hmm. And there's an awful lot of that out there. Even sometimes very respectable news organisations mm-hmm. get, get caught out in that way. Mm-hmm. And the money and the time that goes into running a proper newsroom is to check that the information you're putting out there is actually, actually correct. So I think one of the best reference points members of the public can take, if you see a story that seems too good to be true, is just check to see whether any of the mm-hmm. mainstream news organisations <clears throat> are covering it. Because if none of them are, the chances mm-hmm. are it's probably not, and that it doesn't, it doesn't stand up uh, to being fact-checked. And it's still a good point of reference. One of my hopes for the future of all of this is that the sophistication and fakery is, is becoming so good that the only way people, the, the people that mm. want the truth, they may have no option other than, 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 than falling back on 
trusted brands, you know, trusted news brands, because you know, with augmented reality making it easy to create fake mm-hmm. films of people giving speeches at events mm-hmm. they never attended, mm-hmm. and with the quality being so good you can't tell the difference between that and the real thing, how do you, who, who do you trust in that environment as well? Mm-hmm. I think so people may gravitate towards new news brands for that reason. Just one final thing I'd say, that doesn't mean to say there aren't very good young news companies that use social media really well. When I was in New York in February, we went to Now This, which has, uh, I think, two billion monthly viewers of its, mm-hmm. uh, of its news content distributed through Facebook, made by younger people, aimed at younger people. You know, it's not a replacement for Radio 4, but you know, it, it, serves, it, does a, it does a service for the people that use it. So there are, there are ways in which you can work with new media. Um, mm. But I think, but yeah, in short, I think it's... I think Greater transparency on where information is coming from mm. is one of the best things that we could achieve because then that allows, at least allows the consumer to weigh up the evidence they're, they're viewing uh, and use their own judgments whether they think it's true or not. I mean, this is, a, this is an international audience here and people have been giving examples from different um, parts of the world. Do you think if um, we achieve greater transparency, I mean, do you mean we in Britain as the social media platforms address this public or is this going to be uh, for the world or, you know, what, what, what's the kind of parameters and is the same debate, the same kind of inquiries happening in other countries? The same debate. I was in a yeah. conference in Paris a few weeks ago and in France having very, very similar debate um slightly it's always slightly different views on what the solutions are but but very and it's about you know again transparency of of where news is coming from and the the obligations and responsibilities of tech companies act against known sources of of fake news and bad news which they can easily do they've easily got power to do one of the big differences i found when we took the second committee to, to washington for our evidence hearings there is that obviously because of the first amendment in america and this is why I've got, I can see why Donald Trump became the sort of person who's talked about fake news a lot. There's, in America, there can be, it can be perfect, seen as perfectly legitimate to, to say false things about people because that's part of a freedom of expression. You know, it's kind of your, your opinion. And we have you know, a tougher legal system Standards of truth. that makes it easy to take action. Well, with Twitter, we had this debate with Twitter. So, so it's, it's not a breach of Twitter's company guidelines to spread to knowingly spread lies on Twitter about somebody and you can do it behind a fake account so you can't be sued for it so the courts are, so if you're the victim the courts aren't open to you you don't know who's doing it Twitter won't tell you and they won't close the account down and, and their view is under the first amendment in America that is perfectly right you know but clearly in Europe we take a different view so I think I think Probably there is a UK-Europe debate. Um, mm. The debate is similar but slightly different in the States. Although on transparent... But in America, they, they, they believe the answer to this problem, the, the constitutional problem, is, is much greater transparency on sources of information. So mm. at least you can identify who's doing it. Mm-hmm. Thank you. James. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I think I, I feel someone should try and address your point. And mm-hmm. uh, I really pick all the popular professions because I'm a journalist by trade, but I'm an economist by education. Um, and so someone has to try and defend forecasts. And essentially what they were trying to do with the Brexit forecasts is, as you say, it's a complete nonsense to say we know what size the economy is going to be in 10 years. We don't know what GDP is now. We will find out in two years' time. Um, but what it is is what's called um, a velocity analysis. It's the track. And essentially, I don't know what I'm going to weigh in 10 years' time. What I do know is that if I eat two extra burgers every day between now and then, I'll weigh about 30 pounds more than I would otherwise. And the Brexit forecasts 
not necessarily George Osborne's, because as Damien said, he was a partisan, but the places trying to do it neutrally essentially go, we know what effects changing certain trading relationships have had in the past, and so we think Brexit is the equivalent of two burgers a day. Now, you may disagree with the forecast, um, and then obviously, because newspaper men like me are simple, you have to put a number on it because no one's going to sort of start talking about momentum analyses and uh, drag effects of different trading relationships because, you know, newspapers. Um, so that then turns into 4,300 a day, which is easy to go, well, how do they know that then? Um, and so I would say there is a difference between, you know, delusional opinion. Unfortunately, to get something in the media, you tend to have to simplify it down enough to the point where it is a little bit OTT are a bit silly but I would say there's a difference between something that's trying to be concerted on like concentrate on facts and a best guess with available evidence from just making up a flashy case and I will leave it to you to decide which Osborne's was um on the Newswise point, on Angie's point, you guys sound great. I'm so happy you exist. Um, like, yes, that's fantastic. My one simple bit of advice for anyone reading complex news would be, like, the one good question for sort of mainstream reporting rather than sort of fake news is, is that a big number? Um, because £10 million sounds like a lot, you know. So ten million here, it adds up down then. But the UK government spends about six hundred billion a year. And so if someone's saying some big problem costs ten million, it might actually be a very small problem. And other numbers are huge or small in different contexts. Two hundred and seventy, for example, you know, if that's the number of fake ballots cast or double ballots in an election, that's actually pretty small. That's a good election. If, as today, it's the number of excess deaths they think were caused by the um, breast cancer screening appointments being missed, I think we would say that's a huge number. Um, and, I, you know, one thing I worry with that statistic is because it's, you know, statistical deaths because it's 270 people who died in this indirect way, whether they will get a lot less justice than people who die as visibly as something like Grenfell. And so I think understanding numbers, is that a big number, is that a small number, would be my advice. I think that was a great pitch for the London School of Economics. But, <laughs> but I'm very conscious we are into our last two minutes. So, Charlie, um, I think you get a chance to either answer the four questions or just say something about... Uh, just shout help. Yeah. <laughs> so you can what, just summarize what's next yeah. for the... Maybe we can't predict, but, yeah, I'm, a reflection I'm, I'm, on the commission. Yeah, very, very sort of briefly, but perhaps yes. sort of opening up trying to capture all of it. My answer to the 10-year-old, you know, Good. is stop looking at the news and go and play football. Um, <laughs> generally, spe generally speaking, um, I think what, what's interesting, uh, I sort of referred to earlier, but what I think is really fascinating, partly reflected in the, the conversation tonight, uh, is the way that um, I think, I don't know if things are getting better, but it's fascinating to see how many different institutions are grappling with this. And as Damien says, some because they feel threatened by, you know, regulation. But we are seeing, I mean, there's been a flurry of stuff from Facebook, including, happily, that they're going to do dating for us, which is great. Um, just what you need to do, given your, your romantic information. Um, but they are definitely responding, and we would see how sincere and sustainable that is. You know, other platforms, of course, there are loads of other platforms. You know, Twitter has taken big steps recently. Uh, Google, which has perhaps a better tradition of sort of engaging with policy issues, 
has made a series of steps. Um, the politicians, I mean, you know, uh, I know he's sitting next to me, but we were kind of slightly proud of the British politicians compared to their American uh, co uh, colleagues, for example, in the way that they dealt with Facebook. And that's a process of politicians, you know, finding out about this trying to work out what the options are uh, and thinking about some kind of um, positive uh, action. And, of course, journalists, you know, as well. Um, again, seeing how they're having to respond. And also, dare I say, uh, academe, you know, education in general. Thinking, hang on a second, what do we have to say about how you can formulate policy, perhaps by even introducing... Um, you know, some kind of research information. Because I think what the, the, this is my last word, as it were. We are in new territory. Yes, there's lots of legacy media and there are regulatory examples from the past and so on that we can learn from. Uh, but this is a new, this is new territory, partly because of new technology. But I think it's the, 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 the combination of different uh, influences on our information. So that 10 year old who when he comes back in from playing football and goes back on the computer, she, he, she, <laughs> she, will, be, um, she, she will be entering into a whole new uh, realm, uh, whole new relationships around information. And yes, some of the problems are about nasty fake news, horrible propagandists, but actually there's a more general thing around, which is also a good thing, about the superabundance of information. And also the diversity. I think, you know, we're all a bit frightened of the diversity of opinions and sources. And yet, in a sense, you know, that's something to, to celebrate as well. Um, so <laughs> we have come to the end of our time, which, um, and I know there are other questions people wanted to ask. Um, so a very short-term prediction is that there is um, a glass of wine and nibbles outside. So I hope you'll get a chance to stay and ask your questions to the panelists um, then. Um, yeah, our report in November might end up being very long, but Charlie's a journalist, so he'll cut it down. Right, um, so thank you so so much for your questions. Please do visit the website and have your say if there are things you want us to consider. And please join me in thanking the panelists very much for their questions.